time to roll up those joints, pack those bowls, and fire up those nails. Because you're listening to Blazing with Bobby Black on Cannabis Radio. What's up, Stonerverse, and welcome to week three of Hash Month here on Blazing. I'm your host, Bobby Black. And each week uh, in July, we've uh, welcomed on a different hash expert, entrepreneur, or connoisseur, as you might say, uh, to the show to talk about hash in all of its wondrous forms, how it's made, how it's enjoyed, all that good stuff. So today, we're extremely honored to have on uh, a woman who is widely recognized as the queen of hash, uh, not only in Amsterdam, but I would say around the world. She's the founder of the Pollinator Company, manufacturers of equipment used to perform ice, uh, water, and dry sieve extractions. Please welcome to the show, Miss Mila Jensen. Hello, Bobby. I'm very happy to be here on your show, and it's an honor. The honor is all mine, Mila. You know, ever since I first met you many, many years ago in Amsterdam, uh, I, I can't even recall which cu- which cannabis cup it was, <laughs> but it was in the 90s at some point. Yeah. And, uh... You know, you've you've always been uh, one of the biggest figures in Amsterdam and in the world of hash, and and it's a, it's just a great honor to have you on. So thank you. Thank so, you too. <laughs> so we, you and I were just at an amazing uh, festival this weekend, the Chalice Festival uh, here in Southern California, and you were like I, a, a guest of Doug's uh, at the event, uh, Doug from Hitman the organizer of the event. So tell me a little about your experience and how you got involved with Chalice. Uh, I met uh, Doug quite some years ago, and the first thing he did, he gave me this wonderful book, Chess Pieces, which I really admire. And ever since then, whatever he's been doing, it's been admirable. And I like people who have the guts to do as they feel how they want to spend their lives and go and do it. It's a risk taker. But... Uh, He's a good friend of mine, and I enjoy coming to the Chalice Cup every year. And you, you're quite a risk taker yourself, and we'll get to some of that a little bit later in the interview. But I, I just I don't want to gloss over Chalice because uh, it happened this week, and of course this is Hash Month on Blazin, and this is the biggest hash event, hash festival in the world, right? I mean, uh, and, and it goes so smoothly. It just was so, uh, there was no stress. Well, at least not for the attendees, maybe for the people running it, but, uh, you know, there was, uh, just a great environment, great interaction with people and some of the best, uh, smokables you could possibly imagine. What was some of your favorites? I like, uh, mainly just the THC guns. That's what my machines make. In fact, the pollinator, I believe, was the very first mechanical way to separate crystals. Right, uh, and before that, it was just done by hand. By hand. Was, you know, of the raking uh, back and forth. I saw that in uh, Afghanistan in 68 when I was there, and then uh, later on my travels, we went up to the Himalayas where they do the rubbing to make uh, between put their hands around the bud and rub it and all the glands stick to their hands and that's how they make the charas which I believe is probably the oldest form of making hashish because you don't require anything. And the Indian charas and correct me if I'm wrong, is actually made with live yes. resin. So it's technically like the first live resin yes. glands, you know, yes. like now we have live resin with butane but 
that yeah. was the original live resin because most other hash is made with dried material, right? Yeah, and it's actually, uh, I find it also quite strange that all the way from Lebanon to China, people were only smoking hash and that there's not really a culture for marijuana as buds at all, maybe more for medical purposes. Well, Europe has always been, uh, was always more hash-oriented, it seemed to me, from even from when I first started going to Amsterdam in the 90s. And that was my first introduction to hash as, a, yeah. as growing up in New York. You Where know, everybody smokes weed. <laughs> yeah, and the, well, not very good weed at the time. And, and to find someone with hash, it would be like this hard, dry little block that you didn't even know if what it really was, you know. Yeah. It could have been like a bullion cube and you wouldn't know the difference, you know, and you're just like, oh, hash. And then you get to Amsterdam and I, to get there as a young man, 21 years old, first time with high times. And to see the variety in the different countries yeah. and look through the binders at the Bluebird and all the different, you know. It well, was how amazing. do you think it is for me now when I look at all these entries for Chalice? And I re- actually, I really like that, you know, things are really moving on. Every time I come here, every six months, there's a totally new product. I think this time it was the sauce that I hadn't ever really been aware of before. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that things really move along. Yeah, the sauce kind of evolved out of the live resin, I think, yeah, because yeah. the live resin is so wet and, like, sugary that the sauce then became the next evolution. Like, okay, why don't we just take the terpenes yeah. and the THCA and mix yeah. them together and, you know. My first experience that I was really aware of it, we went up with some sadhus above uh, uh, Manali, and they showed us the plants that they really appreciated because they didn't like these... Uh, ten-foot plants down in the valley. No, they went up to at least like two and a half thousand meters and then you have the extra benefit of the UV light up there. And what they would find was these scraggly plants that managed to survive the winter because they were a little dull and were covered with snow. And these would start growing again in spring and not make big plants. They were like like bonsais and even the tops were bonsai. But we rubbed the hash from that with these guys and I must say, it was like an acid trip walking down that mountain. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, you've, you've been on so many incredible uh, journeys and as well documented in the film, uh, appropriately named, Mila's Journey. So you, had, you went on all these adventures when you were young with your husband and then... First time I didn't have a husband, so oh, okay. I just went. <laughs> yeah. You just went. Okay, sorry. And then so you went on these journeys and you had these amazing adventures. And then the movie is about how you revisit that journey uh, many years later. It's just a lovely, fascinating documentary. Uh, who helped you make this movie and where did you get the inspiration to, to do it? Uh, my sister actually uh, produced the movie and uh, she just wanted to start something totally new in her life. And they wanted a, a woman to, to be around a female. And uh, they wanted it to be someone that had some old footage. And as you see in the movie, I even have footage from the 60s when we still had a boutique. And definitely from trekking in the Himalayas, which was then already like 30 years ago. So I became their first victim. <laughs> <laughs> And now, actually, they want to make an update because, as you see, it stops before, definitely before I came, became the queen of hash. And if anyone feels inclined, they're looking for some crowdfunding.
Okay. Right on. And we'll definitely put a link to that uh, on our Facebook page for sure. Um, So you mentioned the boutique. Tell me a little about the boutique because this is something, one of my favorite parts, I guess, of the movie. I bet a lot of people say that, but it's showing you in your your joyous youth. You're just this free-spirited, young, beautiful young woman and just having a blast and trying on weird, different clothes. What was that, I mean, what was that period like for you? That was a really amazing period because um, I got together with his designer. He used to design for a big fashion designer and would never get any recognition after the spring or the fall show. So then when we had a little bit of money, we decided, okay, we're going to do our own thing. And actually, we were the, the first boutique that where you could actually buy a miniskirt in those days. Okay, you could cut it off, but... and. It was really fun, and he was just an incredible designer, really, really. He'd just sit one evening and come up with, like, 15 designs, and, and all of them would be suitable and usable. And uh, and it was a fun time with lots of parties, and it was the 60s, so there was a lot happening in Amsterdam in those days. And what was the name of the boutique? That was called Kink 22. And we couldn't think of a name. And then at that week, it was... Because we only had like two and a half weeks to set it all up. Or that's when we opened. And uh, Kink was just number one hit, uh, one of their songs in that week. And then we thought, well, that's a bit empty. And our house number was 22. So it became Kink 22. Right but that was a really great time. I enjoyed it a lot. And, and so you had uh, celebrities that would come into the shop and get clothes from you guys, then you got to party with some celebrities and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, no, I can't even think of her name. This very famous singer from the States. Um, there used to be a couple, and her guy was Sonny, and they split up. Tina Turner? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, she came in the shop, and uh, a lot of uh, musicians uh, came to... Because our gear was suitable for stage and everything and for parties. Yeah. <laughs> it was actually quite hard work because we had uh, like three guys stitching dresses all week and then Saturday we'd sell out. So after uh, one and a half year that got a bit exhausting and uh, as my friends felt there was no good place to hang out. Uh, during the day we changed the whole boutique into a tea shop, which might have been the first coffee shop apart from the fact that we never sold anything. <laughs> yeah. We just traded. Sort of like here at the Hitman Coffee Shop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's, uh, it's appropriate to see how it's come full circle, right? <laughs> yeah, really, really. So, you, so the tea house that you ha- ha- had opened uh, could, like you said, be considered the first coffee shop. I wonder if you're, uh, since you were so active in the scene back then, a few years back, I got to meet and interview an incredibly interesting older gentleman named Keys Hokert. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah, sure yeah, you know who yeah, Keys yeah, Hokert yeah, is. Yeah. Because uh, I know you were involved with the with the Provos as well, were you not? You were involved in In that? a much smaller way. He was really yeah. uh, more involved than me. I had my boutique, and sure, every time we heard the police cars going to the damn square, we'd jump on our bikes and <laughs> there'd be another yeah. riot or something. And I went to, they always used to have the spot by uh, a little statue where they'd have like smoke ins. The boy, the yeah, peeing boy. Yeah, the right? peeing boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that was where we would give flowers to the cops and all these things. Right. 
Yeah. But yeah. did you did you did you know him? Did you have a relationship with him, or just from afar, maybe? Yeah, I mean, we knew who each other was. Uh, yeah. But uh, we never really hung out for a whole full hour together, really. <laughs> I was I was just curious because I got to spend some time with him on his boat. Uh, you know, which you know originally used to be his grow shop, his yeah. boat, and uh, I got to spend time with him, and he's well, just his, his, his coffee shop, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. But they had plants growing, yeah, didn't they, on yeah, the, yeah, on the yeah, top? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I got to spend time with him. The boat it was like falling apart. It was he's like a crazy old hermit. He just like lives with books and papers stacked everywhere, and he's yeah. like, you know, he's like quite the uh, mad scientist yeah. character. But yeah. uh, anyway, I was just curious if you if you had uh, known him. Because I know that you. I know him, but uh, I I couldn't. I think the time you spent with him was probably much more than (laughs) I ever spent with him. Um, But you also you you also got to uh, experience uh, seeing the Dalai Lama as part of your journeys as well, right? Tell me a little about that experience. Well, uh, at one point I went with my uh, husband of those days, and we decided to see if making documentaries would be a feasible way of getting along in life. He was a photographer. So we ended up getting all this film equipment and we made this three-month trek through the Himalayas, which was really mind-boggling. And at some point we arrive in a little uh, kind of village where the the Gompa or the temple is by far the biggest building there. And everybody's very excited and there were lots of people there. All these women in their beautiful costumes with their hats covered with turquoise and corals and silver. And there were so many people there that we kind of wondered kind of what's going to go on. And we were traveling with a horseman who owned the horses that we used to carry our gear. And uh, he told us it's the Dalai Lama coming. So he didn't want to leave until the Dalai Lama had been. Sure. And that was just amazing. In those days, he still drove around in one Jeep. I think now he has a whole circus going along with him. Yeah. And he was so sweet. And the the people, they were like so much in love with him. Afterwards, they were just standing there stunned. They'd really seen... Yeah, heaven or yeah, yeah. I'm sure. He, I'm sure he put, puts out emits quite a uh, a beautiful aura and vibe. He's a beautiful person. Yes, yeah. yes. I've had the opportunity to meet him a couple of times, and uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's one yeah. of my bucket list uh, items would be to meet and shake uh, the hand of, and bow yeah. to the Dalai Lama because uh, I have I have a great deal of respect for him. So, obviously, you love India. You've spent a lot of time there, and, and looking at the movie, you, you connected very deeply with the people there, it seemed, uh, especially when you were looking at the photos with them and yeah. figuring out who was in what photo. That was amazing. I advise anyone that traveled somewhere years and years ago, if they go back, take the photographs, because people will recognize the people on the photographs, and you immediately have become a friend because you were part of... The good old days. I think it doesn't matter where in the world you are. Everybody talks about the good old days. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what, what was it about India that uh, took you in so much? Was it the people? Was it the landscape? Was it the hash? What, what was it that made you fall in love with it? Uh, my first attraction was actually reading books about philosophy and Hinduism and uh, Buddhism. And at that point, I even wanted to study philosophy. And life led it in a different way. And I was actually on my way to travel to Mexico when this guy walked into the tea house 
and he'd been to India and he talked about the sadhus and he talked about the Tibetans and I think within two hours uh, my whole plan changed <laughs> no Mexico heading for India <laughs> and it was uh, yeah it was really uh, an amazing experience uh, just the fact that you have thousands of gods instead of one just makes your whole life quite different and in the end, I studied Tibetan and Buddhism in a more deeper level, and uh, it gives so many answers to mon so many questions in one's life. It uh, has helped me a lot. Well, it's quite a pilgrimage. I mean, uh, I, I believe it was 1976 you trekked into the Himalayas. It was a, a three-month trek, is yeah, that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And then three months in and out, or three no, months in no, and three it was three months around. We okay, trekked gotcha. from Manali, kind of directly north to Leh, and then we headed westwards and then cut down through Padam. Well, which is our story. And, so and then, you then we got attacked by wolves on that oh, trip. No. Also. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Um, and then more than 30 years later, you decided to revisit and re to recreate your original journey. Like, what, what possessed you? Obviously... Uh, you're not you're not uh, as young a lady as that's you were why we couldn't do the whole journey. We <laughs> yeah. just went to a few spots that had been meaningful, like where we had met sure. the Dalai Lama, and there we actually made an exhibition in the in the monastery there of all the photos from like thirty thirty five years ago. Um, yeah, that was nice. The feeling that you get from watching the film and from and just from talking to you in person is that obviously you're you're a person who values freedom you want to do what you want to do you don't like authority you don't care about other things uh and you love to travel and take in new experiences so what do you think it was that instilled this this wanderlust in you uh do you think it was something that you were born with do you think it's something that your parents fostered or did they fight against it what was the no i led a wandering life already uh, right when i was a baby <laughs> i was born not in my parents country because it was still in the war so I was born in England, then we went to Holland, Indonesia, England, Holland. So as a child I was already coming to new places, making new friends, and I think maybe that was an advantage for later on in life. Well, but, it, it uh, made you of that mindset of just, if I want to go somewhere, I yeah, just go. Yeah, 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 because they were already also moving around. So where were your parents from originally, what region? They were from both from Holland, but they met in the United States, got married, and then my mother got pregnant and they tried to get back to Holland but it was just no transport available in 1944 so they ended up in England and I was born in Liverpool I'm a Scousey <laughs> <laughs> and so how did your parents feel as you about the path that you've taken in your life early on and then further on when you became the quote hash queen uh, did they approve or disapprove of it were they open to cannabis or were they not so open to cannabis alas both my parents died many many years ago they never they never saw the start of my business and certainly not me becoming a hash queen okay. <laughs> they were still around when I was just starting to smoke hash and uh, uh, they were around when I had my first LSD, not with them, but yes. in that period. And my mother was always supportive of me. Even when I had to tell her that I was pregnant at the age of 18, <laughs> she was not like my dad who said, you better go. <laughs> <laughs> she fully supported me. 
Yeah, and that's an interesting point, too, that's brought up in the movie is about the fact that you're a mother and all, all these travels you're, you're going on and all these experiences you're having, you're doing so as a mother with the added, uh, I won't say burden, but the added responsibility of taking care of children along this journey and, 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 yeah. and doing right by them. It was, it's, uh, I think it was on my travels by the time I reached Kathmandu, I realized wherever me and my daughter are, that's where home is. <laughs> and to always treat it like home. And uh, I don't know, my daughter, she travels uh, quite a bit, but my uh, younger children, by then I'd realized that I wanted to raise my kids in India without a TV and all these things, and just in nature and to be aware when it was full moon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think for them as children, uh, I don't think any of them regret that I took them over there. I think it was the problem so it started a bit when we came back. Oh. And my daughter was like 13, and she had quite a hard time to adjust <laughs> to being in the West. It's like a different world. Yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. But she's doing very well now, so... But you, but you have a good relationship with your children, and are they oh, yeah. are they approving of your uh, of your cannabis lifestyle? Or I think when they all became first aware of it that I was involved in cannabis, they kind of courted me and questioned me what was going on, and uh, and then I told them, well, they'd already seen me smoking uh, because I started smoking long before any of them were born. Sure. And uh, I think they approve, and uh, they see that I'm doing okay, and I don't think they have any. Uh, I don't know, you'd have to ask them. <laughs> but I see them all the time, and I phone them, and I have contact with them, and we get on great. And some of them, I think, were inspired by what it was I was doing. Like my youngest son became a pharmaceutical chemist, and he's working on uh, what uh, compounds reach which receptors and stuff. Very oh. admirable. I hope one day he'll be able to do the same for cannabis because at the moment he's not involved in the cannabis business. Okay, well, you never know. Maybe we can persuade him. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to take a, a quick break right now um, to get a word from our sponsor in, but please do not go anywhere because we'll be right back with more of our interview with Hash Queen Mila here on Blazin'. You're listening to Blazin' with Bobby Black on Cannabis Radio. Introducing 420 Cloud, ignited by MSIG, one of the fastest-growing social apps around. The only app you'll need for all things cannabis. Find the latest cannabis news, videos, and stories, ranging from business and tech to sports and medicine. Start your career in cannabis by seeking, identifying, and applying for jobs through our expansive listings. For businesses, 420cloud.com features a full-scale cross-channel network, monetizing high traffic for big data conversion and analytics. Download 420 Cloud now from the iTunes Store or Google Play. MSIG.com is a publicly listed company running a successful cannabis business isn't easy successful businesses need to have strong people to achieve long-term results at live advisors we believe people are the heart of business and training people can help you infinitely grow your business learn more about our offerings at liveadvisors.com next to thc and cbd you can now add CBR to your cannabis vernacular. CBR as in CannabisRadio.com. Blazing with Bobby Black. All right, everybody, and welcome back to 
Hash Week, excuse me, Hash Month here on Blazin. Our guest this week is the queen of hash herself, uh, Mila, owner of the Pollinator Company out of Amsterdam. Uh, Amsterdam, of course, where I first met her many years ago. Uh, in the first half, we talked about your life, um, your experiences traveling, uh, and we touched a little on your time in Amsterdam in the summer of love era. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about what happened after that in Amsterdam, how you established yourself as a hash queen in Amsterdam, and your company, and, and your shop, and all, all that that developed. Well, to have become the hash queen and, and the legend and all these things is quite a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, my first machine was the first mechanical way to separate the crystals. But um, let me tell you why I love hash so much. I started smoking it in 64 in Amsterdam. At that time, there was no weed. I went to India for 14 years. There was no weed. There was only hash and some of the best coming straight from Afghanistan. And then coming back, there was all these coffee shops selling weed and hash that I didn't really like. But I did get the opportunity to at least make my money out of that whole big boom because I started growing and uh, I had to do something to uh, pay for all these four kids and their education and everything and that went quite well until the day I, uh, we had another problem at one of the gardens and it got closed down and I suddenly thought, man, what happens if I get bust and what happens to the kids? So in actual fact, I had already... Uh, invented the pollinator nearly a year earlier and at that moment I decided okay I'm just going to start making those because people seem to really like them and I had 5,000 guilders in my pocket left after all those years of growing and uh, I used them to build the first three pollinators and uh, Rob Clark unveiled it at the High Times event that year and it's taken off from there. We still sell the same machines. Okay, the shape has changed a bit, but yeah. it's the same system. And you had sort of like a eureka moment, right? Like where you were looking at a dryer tumbling, yeah. and, you, yeah. and you said, yeah. wait a minute. Yeah. And yeah, the little light bulb to, went off. Yeah, when I was uh, growing in Amsterdam, of course, we had lots of materials. So because I only like the hash and I'd seen how it's done, I would sift it and you kind of have to waffle the leaves over a screen and it's a very slow and tedious job and best done sitting in the freezing cold. <laughs> <laughs> so after uh, doing that for like oh, a couple of years I think, uh, one time I was standing in front of my clothes dryer, not where the clothes wash but where they dry and if you look those clothes are tumbling they were doing exactly what I was doing by hand. So the next day we got an old uh, dryer, took out the heat, put a screen around the drum, threw some material in, and lo and behold, all the crystals <laughs> were lying at the bottom. <laughs> wow, and so from there it just developed. Um, you uh, uh, partnered with uh, uh, Reinhard Delp, is that right? He, he was uh, a partner of yours who helped introduce for the ice water extraction? Uh, yes, at some point I was going to be his world distributor. It didn't seem that he wanted his name to be known. Um, but then he started working with the Swiss, and that was like I felt very unfair competition. And also, I must say, when his first uh, machines arrived, he was getting them made in Yugoslavia. <coughs> you have this, like, plastic bag at the bottom, 
where the crystals fall through to fall in a little bottle. And these banks were not soldered right. So every single machine broke and water started pouring out within six oh. months. So I was getting shit from the people I was selling them to. Sure, sure. <laughs> and I just started racking my brains. How can I do this without... Because the shipping of the machine, because it was heavy, it was big, it was wood and stainless steel, cost a fortune. Yeah. So I was racking my brains how to get something that I could put in an envelope. And I guess being a tailor and seamstress, I soon got to think about cloth and how to organize it, that you get a horizontal screen. And in fact, the first uh, isolator bags I sewed on my own sewing machine uh, to try them out. Yeah. Wow. And it worked. <laughs> so that was the invention of the isolator bags, which have since become legendary and which yeah. have been used by thousands of people to make awesome hashish. Yeah. Uh, so that that was in what uh, the isolator is what like ninety eight ninety eight yeah. right and then so from there uh, and that's used to process what fresh material or dried material or both uh, okay with a pollinator you must use dried material it's crispy dry um, with a isolator you can use both. The thing is that if you put in dried material, you can put, let's say, in our small system, like 300 grams. Well, if you translate that into fresh material, we all know that only about 10-15% remains. So you're doing much less. So it's going to take longer. But I must say the results are certainly 100% worth it. It depends what you want to do. It's the same like with the pollinator, the dry sift material. I always tell people if they really want the flavors, the terpenes, they're better off dry sifting than using water and ice because it will always remove some of the taste. Right. I also want to say that bottom line, to make any good hash, genetics is of the main importance. You know you can make fantastic hash, but if uh, it's uh, not a good strain, You'll never get a good hash. The better the strain, the better your hash. Of course. What are some of your favorite strains and favorite hashes that you've ever smoked? What do you tend to gravitate towards? Uh, I like sativas. At the moment, I'm a bit of a loss. When I come to the States, every single plant seems to have a new name. <laughs> I just can't keep up. <laughs> yeah. But I certainly am uh, over Chalice, where I had the good fortune to... Uh, uh, judge the rosin and the dry sift and there's some good stuff being made over here and it's really nice to see how now in America that used to be like a demon concerned <laughs> for drugs is now really leading in the world in a really, positive really, in direction in a most positive way and sad to say uh, Amsterdam is sadly lacking behind and they're just going retrograde and I can only blame that we voted for the wrong government. Yeah, as we did, well, we did here too, so don't feel too bad. <laughs> Definitely voted for the wrong government here. Um, but, uh, yeah, so uh, since things have changed in Amsterdam, um, that's partly to blame, I'm guessing, for some of the issues you had you had to go through. Um, you, yeah. you you originally with uh, we should mention from the from the pollinator you opened a shop in Amsterdam a pollinator shop which was yeah. there for many years talk a little about the shop and 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 how that came that together. was a really nice place it was uh, really big maybe not quite as big as uh, Hitman coffee shop but mm -hmm. getting very close 
And, uh, yeah, it was a haven for travelers. And uh, then about two years ago, I got this government letter that actually my shop was illegal and that all my workers were criminals. So, alas and alack, mm-hmm. the two were people that I had working for me already for 14 years. They both quit. Oh. That was kind of sad. And I suddenly got a bit paranoid because I thought if the police actually closed down my shop, how long can I afford to pay the mortgage to the bank before they say, okay, we'll take it back. Yeah. <laughs> we'll sell it for you. And then, of course, there's no chance you get any profit at all. So I decided I better sell it while I can. While I can. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And so you were just selling pollinators out of the shop, or did you... I mean, that was the whole confusion, because the whole action was against grow shops. Now, we don't sell soil, nutrients, lamps, nothing like that. And that's how, in the end, we won our case, because we did have to go to court. And yeah. uh, my lawyer just pointed it out that we were not a grow shop, and that the systems of separating crystals... Uh, are really mainly meant for small growers to make their own little product and because that was the accusation that you were supplying huge growers and they were making (laughs) illegal millions (laughs) (laughs) but we won so we're still there but now we move to Amsterdam North where we have a warehouse more than just a shop Okay, and then you also had uh, an institution there for many years, the Hemp Hotel. Yeah, um, that was a very well-known, uh, beloved landmark in the city, and it's it was the site where you hosted your annual ladies' hash party during the Cannabis Cup, which uh, my wife April raved about. She got to go to uh, many. Tell us a little about the Hemp Hotel and the ladies' hash party. Uh, the Hemp Hotel is a great place. Um, all manner of people stayed there and used to hang out there and the ladies night thing actually we did it every month it was just that April was only there oh. in November <laughs> yeah <laughs> once a month we did it wow and um, yeah I like that also you know and yeah it was very nice yeah I enjoyed that yeah, I always thought ladies' uh, hash party seemed like a bit of a counterpoint to the legends party. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah. Because the yeah, legends yeah. was like an like a boys' club kind of situation. Although I've been told that you were always I on was the really list. Always there. You were and, always on the uh, list. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't the only lady there. You were not either. excluded. No, no, and I was not the only lady there. That's true. There were always at, at least three, maybe four of them. I remember I, I got to. I was fortunate enough to be invited. I got to go for three three years. Um, and uh, one of the years I went, uh, was, uh, Debbie Goldsberry yeah. was there. She she was uh, one of the women there. I remember uh, those parties were pretty awesome. Uh, they were pretty yeah, unique. Very awesome. Pretty yeah. unique. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and uh, I loved that uh, they always had this hookah, and <laughs> people could smoke a hookah because when I first well, in Afghanistan, people only smoke hookahs. In fact, when we reached the border. Uh, we were sitting there at the custom kind of place, which was just a gathering of tea shops. When the police came over, brought their own hookah, lit it up, and said, "Welcome, welcome to Afghanistan." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So know. it's nice that they had the hookah there. It always brought back old memories. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I learned I learned more about hash and those those parties than probably anything anywhere else in all the years at High Times. Um, but. Um, uh, you have your own uh, hash uh, competition as well that you've developed called Dabadoo. Tell us a little about Dabadoo. Um, I created Dabadoo for my 69th birthday. 
just as a one-time event, I've been very inspired by coming over to what's the very first chalice over in Denver at that time, and thought I really want to put something for Hash together also. So we have this competition, and there's three categories, solvent, non-solvent, and rosin. And it's been fabulous after that first one. Everybody liked it so much. Three months later, we had one in uh, Barcelona. And now I'm 72, so it's not even completely three years later. And I think we're reaching close to 30 uh, Dabadoo so far. And it's really nice. I love it because I get invited to these mad countries. Like we had a Dabadoo three, four weeks ago in uh, Colombia, which I love that place. And it was held up in a tea uh, plantation at 8,000 feet with a few to die for. And the best thing was they took me there in a helicopter. Wow. Never been in one in my life. Wow. And now we're planning a Dabadoo in Mexico, where apparently you do can do paragliding and horseback riding also. And uh, we're going to have one in the second one in Jamaica. We're going to have one in 13th of September in Boston. Wow, you've got a bunch of them planned coming up. Yeah. And these are these are like smaller scale events. They're not like the size they're of like... Not, no, no. They're, they're, they're usually more about, intimate. Yeah, they're usually about 200, 300 people, sometimes up to 400. And everybody is liking to smoke hash, you know. So there's no other conversation, no other interest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool, cool. I'm, I, I got to attend one in Amsterdam yeah. uh, not a few years back before leaving High Times, and that was a lot of fun. Um, very crowded, very smoky, but yeah. very fun. <laughs> yeah. um, I hope to get, I'm sure I will have another opportunity to visit another Dabadoo, and uh, yeah, and we'll have more information about uh, Dabadoo and how to get there on our travel website page, and that's facebook.com slash travel. We need to take another quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Mila the Hash Queen here on Blazin. You're listening to Blazin with Bobby Black on Cannabis Radio. Strainwise Consulting is the most sought-after consulting company for cannabis business applications and management contracts. We consulted on the first recreational license in the world and have had an over 95% success rate on applications submitted. The industry is growing at such an exponential rate that building a powerful and lasting cannabis business is a number one priority. Here's Strainwise's Sean Eubanks. In our first five years, we branded and supported nine medical and recreational marijuana dispensaries and approximately 160,000 square feet of sophisticated and efficient product cultivation. Strainwise Consulting has the experience and expertise... Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now About a game for your phone gonna make you say wow The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash Grow the seeds, sell the board, put the savings in the stash Little by little your empire grows large Put the big celebrities inside your entourage You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Cheech and Chong Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong The name of the game is Himping, that's the point Download and play while you light yourself a joint The business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot-proofed by the man who run high times. Oh yeah, get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. 
Are you disturbed by the prescription medication commercials on television and their endless list of side effects? They go on and on and you end up having to take multiple pills to counteract the problems caused by the first pill. It never ends. Have you looked into CBD as a more natural option? At Saturn Ranch, we produce all-natural CBD topicals and THC-infused edibles. Premium lab-tested hemp-derived CBD is the most important ingredient in our products. From topical bombs, salt scrubs, bath-soaking salts to tinctures and edibles, you're sure to find something to help. Family-owned and operated, we at Saturn Ranch believe in and use our products daily. Don't put anything on your body that you wouldn't put in your body. SaturnRanch.com Maui Wowie. Acapulco Gold, California Kush. Our strains stretch everywhere, too. This is the Cannabis Radio Network. Reason with Bobby Black. And we're back. Uh, Bobby Black here with Mila the Hash Queen. The other thing I wanted to ask you, we're, we're talking about the hash itself, um, being someone from, from Holland, there's a thing called Nader hash. Now, there's obviously all kinds of different types of hash around the world. What is it that makes Nader hash different or special in some way from other hash? Well, uh, as you know, with high uh, times, they always used to have just one prize for hash. And when people started using pollinators and definitely isolators, the quality was so different from any Afghani or Moroccan hash that it was judged in the end better to make it two separate uh, categories. And I think the word Nader has just came about because it's made in Holland, and 99% of the time it's made with one of my machines. <laughs> <laughs> so, as someone who's smoked, I'm guessing, I, I know, every different type of hash there is to smoke at this point, um, do you, what is your preference? Do you prefer uh, dry sift? Do you prefer ice ice bubble hash? Do you prefer uh, traditional pressed hash? Do you prefer butane dabs? Um, what's your okay. feeling on it? What's your feeling on it? Give me give me your rating system. Okay, I like the dry sift very much, especially if people are not greedy and try to get more, because every thing that they get more is what you don't really want. <laughs> uh, I must say, though, that my favorite is uh, water hash, especially made from fresh frozen, which is something that I uh, first experienced like uh, only a few years ago. It maybe has a little bit less taste, but it's just usually stronger, and I must say I like that. <laughs> right on. Uh, we hear some uh, chatter in the uh, background, and that would be that would be uh, owner of the Hitman Coffee Shop, Doug, down there holding court. Uh, <laughs> we, Doug's such a such a fun and interesting character. Tell tell me again how you how you uh, how you met Doug. And uh, I think it was five six years ago, and I met actually in a High Times office where oh, uh, they asked me to come to do some judging or something, and he was there. And at that moment, he had standing on the table this amazing chess piece on legs with... Uh, right. It's uh, just a legend, that piece. Yeah. And I saw that and got really interested, and we just started talking and hit it off. That was... I, I did the interview with him with that piece. We played chess, and I did the interview, and it was... Uh, yeah, it was pretty remarkable. Pretty yeah, remarkable. That so. was the first time I met him. What about what about Nikati? I know that Nikati has become sort of a protege of yours. Yeah. Uh, he's really uh, another of the younger generation that have really 
uh, taken a, a shine to you and wanting to learn from you. How did that, how, tell me about your relationship with Nick Atee. Yeah, I love Nick Atee. He's a great guy. He came over, well, I think it was in the 90s, and he already liked Tash, and we sat for many hours, days together and talked and everything. And Yeah, and I love what he's doing because he's, in some ways, he's brought my products on a new level and uh, gets even more pure stuff. No, I love him, and uh, he's a great friend. Yeah. So he's a he's like a non-solvent, uh, solventless yes. only guy. Yes. He's yes. pretty uh, hardcore yes. about that. You know, I have seen him take a dab here and there, but he usually sticks to the solvent. Uh, same like me. I I will occasionally take a dab, and it might even be BHO, but it's definitely not my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we I had Frenchie uh, on the show yeah. two week, uh, two weeks ago, and uh, what what a great guy! He's so much fun. Yeah, um, got to spend time with him and you at Chalice this weekend, and uh, we, we got met to first time in India. Did uh, you? We probably didn't uh, look at each other hardly, <laughs> but I know we were, we we figured it out. We've been in the same places at the same time. And yeah, we must have run into each other. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, he's got quite a few stories to tell, as you do. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love talking to him. We can go back to the same valley, remote valley up in the Himalayas. And we'll both have been there <laughs> and talk about how it was yeah, to be there. Yeah, it's such an exclusive club of people. Like, there's probably only a handful of people on Earth that could understand that story, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Uh, so, one of the... I was really happy that I got to sit with you and Frenchie for a while uh, at the Hitman uh, booth yeah. at, at Chalice this weekend and got to smoke some of Frenchie's uh, out of you his... You got to smoke out of his hookah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, the chillum you the got. The chillum, yeah. Yeah, the next day he set up a whole hookah and everything. Oh, man. But, but uh, I think as far as the chillum goes, that must be the oldest way that people smoke. Right. Because it's so natural to look around and a hollow stone, even a hollow branch would yeah. do the trick. Yeah. yeah, and I don't know, I don't remember exactly what he had in there, but boy, <laughs> yeah. as you might expect, it was uh, mind-blowing. It was yeah. very, very good. So, did I ask you already if you had a favorite hash that you'd ever smoked? Is there one hash that stands out maybe from your most epic location or something like that? Uh, usually I just say the hash I'm smoking right now. <laughs> because I know it'll be a good one. <laughs> and, uh, well, to really, uh, yeah, like I love the Skittle stuff. And, um, but the best smoke I had was with these sounders and walking down it. It was like an acid trip. Just the whole feeling with these guys was amazing. Yeah. Because they really see it also as a more spiritual event you know it's not just recreational or medicinal yeah. for them it's spiritual yeah and that kind of puts a whole new thing in it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah tell us what you're doing here today at the hitman coffee shop you have a special event going on today uh, a little later today tell us about, about what uh, what people can expect i'm going to be uh talking about the history of hash i'll throw in some personal stories and um, if we have time, we'll actually make some hash. And if we have time, we'll have a look at the movie. And that's about it. Oh, a screening of the film. Yeah. Oh, that would be great. That I have a great. nice uh, PowerPoint about the history of hash. So. Amazing. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, I hope that uh, you continue to uh, succeed with Jabadoo and with 
your seminars and everything that you're doing. And uh, I encourage all of our listeners to, if you haven't already, please check out the film Mila's Journey. It's an amazing film, and it gives you a real insight into into the type of woman that she is and, and, and why she is where she is in such a high-respected place in our community. Uh, Mila, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Bobby, it's thank been a you so real much. pleasure and an honor. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, take care, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, eagerly look for your, for your next uh, Dabadoo or your we'll next seminar. Touch, yeah. Well, I'd just like to say how grateful I am to have had the opportunity to sit down with Mila here today at the Hitman Coffee Shop and get this interview done. Uh, I originally intended to interview Mila at the Chalice event. Uh, There was actually several interviews I was hoping to do at the Chalice event. But uh, if any of you have been to some of these events, you know that it can be kind of hard to get things done, uh, especially when you're dealing with uh, triple-digit temperatures and people are offering you joints and dabs and edibles and all that kind of stuff. Honestly, it was hard for me to make it 20 feet without bumping into an old friend or someone who I wanted to connect with. And what with everyone's conflicting schedules and all the cool activities going on, It just got kind of hard to sit down and schedule any interviews. Before we sign off this week, I have a bunch of shout-outs I'd like to get to. First and foremost, I want to thank Doug and Nikki and the whole Hitman fam for not only letting us record our Mila interview at the coffee shop today, but also for putting on such a kick-ass festival this weekend. Really just props out to the entire team, uh, especially Eddie Funksta and his family and Vicky and everyone else who made us feel so welcome. So thank you so much. I also want to give a shout out to some of the awesome Canna fam I got to spend time with while I was there, including Ganja John, Addison Demura, Dan Desai, uh, Jason Pinsky and Rye Pritchard of Bong Appetit. Great hanging with you guys. All the cool artists in Glass Village, including Darby, D-Rec, Saki Bomb Hacky Sack, JD Maples Din, Lisa from Lisa's Pieces, and anyone else I may have missed, Jerry Krasecki, the Reverend Eddie Lepp and his lovely wife Heidi, Ron, Eva, and Ty of Sensi Magazine for letting us crash their Froze Sorbet party in the VIP cabana. And, of course, Crockett and the whole Crockett Family Farms crew. And last but certainly not least, uh, my hash experts, Mila and Frenchie Cannoli, who I got to share a most excellent chillum full of delicious hash with. So thank you guys so much. And if there's anyone that I forgot, please accept my apologies. Um, It's been a long week, and I'm still recovering. And that's going to wrap it up for this edition of Blazin'. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in and hook up with us again next week for the final week of Hash Month here on Blazin. In the meantime, you can check out links to Mila and her projects as well as all of the other guests from Blazin on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Black. While you're there, be sure to like us and leave us some feedback. You can also follow me on social media, Twitter at Bobby Black. Instagram and Facebook at Bobby Black 420. Also, be sure to check out my exclusive interview with Doug from Hitman in the latest issue of Greenleaf Magazine, which you can download for free at greenleafmag.com. Until next time, this is Bobby Black saying, blaze on and peace off.
Opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.